Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to remember that you are the keeper of our souls and that we have security in Christ. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. When I was younger, I decided to take a car trip most of the way across the country, not, not quite all the way, and I stopped to see several friends along the way, and one of my friends lived in Detroit, and you probably know a little bit about Detroit, but it's not exactly the happiest city on the face of the earth, nor is it a city that if you're a young kid from Maine who doesn't really know about cities, a city that you want to get lost in which now you probably can guess what happened. I I found myself very lost in this city that I neither knew much about other than having flown through the the airport more than once or twice, and that was the extent of my knowledge. But I found myself in a part that, even being a kid from Maine, I knew well enough that that was not a part of the city that I wanted to be in nor even belonged in. So I remember just praying and and hoping and driving until all of a sudden I found a a safe place and called my friends and told them, you know, I'm I'm lost. I have not the foggiest idea where I am, and I think I'm probably not supposed to be where I am. And they helped me out, and I got safely to their house eventually and had a grand time visiting them. But this, this psalm sort of starts with that idea of, There's some sort of danger. It's not imminently clear what that danger is, but there's this sense of danger at the very beginning of the psalm. But before we dive too deep into that psalm, there's actually some context that we need to to understand with, with this psalm. And the first part is if you notice on your handout, we don't have it in our little prayer book, the little title is A Song of Ascent. And... If you're an astute observer, you know that there are 15 psalms or songs of ascent in the the Psalter, starting at at 120 and going through 134. And and you may even have an explanation of what these psalms or songs of ascent are, but maybe not. So there's two explanations that make the most sense. Nobody's really 100% sure most of the commentaries I read were like, well, it could be this or this, but we don't really know. But the two that make the most sense are either, they were songs that were sung as, as the men went up from the court of the women into the court of Israel. So, so the temple would have had three courts, and then, of course, the Holy of Holies beyond that court of Israel. Um, and the, the first one was the court of Gentiles, and then the court of, of the women, and then, of course, the court of Israel. And it was all all segregated, and maybe we don't like the idea that worship was segregated, but it was, and, and that's, that's the way it was. But, but between the, the court of the women and the court of Israel, there were 15 steps. And so some people think, well, maybe these were sung as people went up, or as the men went up from one step to the next. And I, I think that's a reasonable exclamation. The one that you most likely have heard is that they were songs or psalms sung by the pilgrims as they made their way up into Jerusalem, and they made their way up from the Galilean Valley or other parts of Israel because Jerusalem was higher than that. I don't actually think either of these have to be totally mutually exclusive. It could just be 
that they were originally written as, as court ones and they went up and then they sang them as they were pilgriming up into Israel. They don't, they don't have to stand alone. But especially if these are songs that were sung by pilgrims as they made their way up, it starts to help us to understand what's going on here. And to give you a little more context, the, the road from Galilee, especially where Jesus kind of spent all of his time hanging out and then going up into Jerusalem, goes up through these mountains a lot like if you're driving up from Phoenix to here, that, that section of road between Black Canyon City and Sunset Point. There's sections where it's not, not quite as windy or steep, but it definitely feels you know that you're going up from a lowland to a, to a higher place, much like when you go up from Black Canyon City, except... Except that in this case, they didn't have the luxury of having um, a car that you could just put on the gas and drive up really quickly and get annoyed at the trucks who are passing, even though there's signs that say they shouldn't, not that that's me, or, or other, <laughs> other things like that. And so not only would it be a strenuous journey, but there were the, the threats of bandits and, and all of that that saw these pilgrims unarmed and probably traveling with money and all of that and thought, that's how we're going to make our next buck. So they would come down and, and steal from them. And so that journey of pilgrimage to Jerusalem would have been fairly threatening, much like if you're a, a young kid that gets lost in Detroit. It, it would have been a scary thing. And so they're looking up to the hills. We can imagine them looking up to the hills and wondering if they're going to make it, praying that they're going to make it, praying for, for um, comfort. And and so that brings us to that first line, I lift up my eyes to the hill from where cometh my, come, does my help come from? And the fascinating thing about the Psalm of, Songs of Ascent is they're all kind of a mystery. We don't entirely know is, is what we just hypothesized. They're looking up to the hills and worrying the bandits are going to come tumbling down on them. It's a, it's a logical reading, but we're not 100% sure that that's what they're thinking Another explanation is perhaps they look up to the hills and, and they're tempted to pray to other gods because the gods lived on top of hills in, in the ancient Near East. Um, that's why the temple, of course, is built on the Temple Mount because that's where you built temples because that's what the gods liked. And so they naturally built their, their temple to Yahweh on top of a mount. But there were other gods that did the same thing. You can see that in ancient Greece as well. But whatever it is, it starts with this question of where is my help going to come from? Either am I going to need to turn away from God or, or, or is there going to be some sort of awful danger come rolling down out of the hills upon me is, is the starting question. <clears throat> but then the second verse answers that question. My help comes from the, from the Lord who hath made heaven and earth. And the reason we read the Psalms this morning by whole verse instead of what we normally do, breaking it in half, is because this Psalm is very clearly written, and I wanted you guys to experience and see it. It's very clearly written by whole verse response, whole verse response. So, so the question is launched in verse 1, where does my help come from? And verse 2 answers it. Verse 3 gives you another a statement that is then not so much answered, but, but expounded upon in verse 4, and so on and so forth until you get to the end of the psalm. Each, each section, each, each little set of each verse makes each other very clear. And so this, this answer comes out. My help comes, from the na- or my help comes from the Lord who hath made heaven and earth. And this is another one of those sections where we, we, we should 
have an exclamation point, or, or if we were one of those churches where we pounded the pulpit, we should pound the pulpit as we said, we have made, he made, or, or from the Lord who had made heaven and earth. There should be no doubt in the reader's mind as to where the help comes from. Help comes from the Lord. And when we read the Lord, and I think most of you know this, you see, see in our little text that it's capital. It's not, it's not a title, right? You know, like if you imagine a medieval kingdom and the person walks in and says, my Lord and my liege, and bows down before him, you should bow before the Lord. But it's not that title that we're used to. When you see those, those little uppercase letters, the Lord, it's actually his name that he reveals himself to Israel with. It's, it's actually how, how the, it's been translated throughout the history of, of Scripture. It's been translated to Lord or Adonai in the Hebrew or uh, Kyrios in the Greek. It, it's, but it's his name, the name Yahweh. And so there's, there's, again, no doubt. So when we hit verse, when we hit who made heaven and earth, some people are like, oh, well, maybe this is a statement of who he is, just to clarify. It's the Lord that happened to make heaven and earth, and he did some other things. But that's not what heaven and earth are actually doing in this passage. When we get to who made heaven and earth, it's kind of a, a flex. It's kind of a, hey, this is how powerful the Lord is. He was the one that made heaven and earth. <clears throat> it's a visualization of power so that you don't doubt. And there's some, some ways that we can we can see this. If you think of Job, I don't know if you've read the book of Job. Um, it's, it's quite a read. <laughs> but it ends where Job kind of is finally just despondent. He doesn't know what to do. And finally, Yahweh, the Lord, or, or God, appears to him. And he starts with a question. And it wasn't like, well, why are you sad? It isn't like anything along that lines. It's, it's were you there? when I laid the foundations of the earth? Which, of course, the answer is no. Of course, Job wasn't there, nor were you and I. But what God is saying there is, I am powerful enough to make heaven and earth. I am sovereign enough to make heaven and earth that I am powerful enough and sovereign enough to see you through this present trouble, Job. To see you through this present trouble. And then if we think about John 1.1, And this other incredible statement is made in that. It says, in the beginning was the word. And of course, we know what the word was. We've heard this enough times because we've all come to church on Christmas. And we know what the word is. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. And it it finally peels out that the word is the man Christ. Incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. And when when we state the word was with God, it's telling us that the second person of the Trinity, just as the Holy Spirit, so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost are all eternal. And so Christ was there at the beginning. Christ helped to lay the foundations of the earth. And so as we read these first two lines, we, we know this experience of feeling helpless, whether it's just because we're lost and, and, and helpless or, or some other, other thing. We know this experience of, my goodness, what are we going to do? And we remember that our God, in Christ, our God through the Holy Spirit, laid the foundations of the earth. He is eternal. He is the creator. You can trust him. You can know whatever has made you despondent, either today or tomorrow or in five weeks from now, you know that you can trust the Lord because he is so powerful. 
that he was able to create everything that you see. Now, I know I've given a lot of context about the psalm, and I know that that's not always the most interesting thing, but in this case, probably that is the most interesting thing about the psalm, other than the fact that it's absolutely beautiful. As we shift from verse 2 to verse 3, there's an interesting move that happens. right? So verse 1 is in first-person singular, my. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, so on and so forth. My eyes, so on and so forth. And it shifts to second person. And Hebrew, unlike English, has a second person singular and a second person plural. So we sometimes do it half-jokingly the way the Southerners do it. Y'all, right, is a second person plural. We don't, it's not really proper English. And, and for some reason, the translations haven't picked that up. Um, but this is not second person plural. It's second person singular. And so it's almost as though there's a shift in who's talking so that now somebody is responding to the initial questioner as to who, <clears throat> as to where his help comes from. And what's also really interesting here is it goes from the subject being me, where does my help come from, to the subject being the Lord. So the Lord is the subject of verses 3 through 8, right? So like example, verses 8, the Lord will keep you. That's, the Lord is the subject there, and he's keeping. <clears throat> and so there's the, these two shifts that are, are very interesting, but I think they're there to provide us with utter proof that we can have a firm understanding that God will protect us all the days of our lives, that God will be with us every day to the end. So the first proof that, that the writer gives or the psalmist gives is that God never tires, never naps, or never sleeps, right? So yesterday, Julie really wanted cider, and I really wanted to go. I thought it'd be a nice relaxing afternoon with with Julie and and Lucy, and all of a sudden, I just got so tired. I could barely get off the couch, and I finally apologized and said, I don't think I can go with you. And I felt like I let them down. I don't know that that was actually a mutual feeling, but we all know this experience of all of a sudden just getting tired and feeling like we're letting somebody down because we don't have the energy to do something. And we have to remember that God is not like us in that. God never tires. God never says to us, you know, I know you really need help right now, but I, I really need a nap. So, so give me a nap, and then I'll, I'll help you out of this situation. That's not who God is. He never tires. He never sleeps. And the psalmist wants you to know this so much that he uses two words for sleep three times in just these two little verses. He says, slumber, slumber, and sleep. As though, just so there's no doubt in your mind, he's, he's not going to sleep on you. He's not going to just say, I need a break and then I'll be here. Now, as, as past week, I was reading an interesting article about how, how the New Testament and the Old Testament relates. And I don't entirely agree with what the author was saying, but he, he made a conclusion that part of the reason why the fourth commandment no longer applies to us, that is keep holy the Sabbath, is because we're supposed to rest in Christ always. And I, I think that that's a really beautiful sentiment. I, I think probably it's still a good idea to take days of rest, um, but that's neither here nor there. But that idea that we're called to rest in Christ really resonates and drives home this point. Because Christ never rests, 
because Christ never tires. You can rest in him, right? So last night was really windy, and maybe if you don't like wind, it was kind of scary. But even in that moment where you're groggy and tired in the middle of the night, and you wake up and wonder, you know, is my house going to blow away? Which hopefully we all have houses that are at least a little bit better than that. We can rest knowing that Christ is there. Even in the middle of the night when we're tired and groggy and frustrated or whatever the feelings are that we're awake at one in the morning, we know that Christ isn't that quiet, groggy, and tired. And so we can give him those worries, those fears, those anxieties, and he is there. <clears throat> the, somebody gave us some chickens um, this, a couple weeks ago, and they're starting to get used to me, and they're, they're the most fascinating creatures to watch. And I just like letting them out and watching them kind of peck around the yard. But I've noticed they've started to figure out, I don't know that they necessarily like me, but they know that I bring them, they know that I bring them food and, and water. And so they see me coming and they all kind of follow me around. Even if I'm not carrying anything, they're like, oh, the bringer of food and water is here. And, and they follow me. They know that I'm, I'm that safe person to bring them food and, and water. And, and animals are so fascinating like that, right? They... They start to pick up and figure out what, who, are, who are safe and good and healthy and happy people and who might not be, and, and, and they run away from them. And Christ picks up on that energy, not, not, using, not using chickens, but, but sheep in John 10, where he talks about him being the good shepherd, how his sheep know his voice. And when we get to the next little section in this, in this chapter of the Psalms, we read that the Lord is your keeper. The Lord will shade you by night. <clears throat> or sorry, the, he will, yeah, that's right. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. We're reminded of the fact that Christ is our good shepherd, that he will know us, that he will keep us throughout all the days, and he will protect us from all those, those evils in the world. We, of course, have a, a a tangible example of this in scripture with Jonah who gets mad and kind of pouts and just sits and so the Lord gives him a, a shade tree and then he kills the shade tree but but he's reminded we're reminded from that, that that the Lord does that but of course sometimes there are natural disasters that are uncomfortable and and we see faithful people die in natural disasters and so we we wonder well how do we read that the Lord will keep us even from natural natural um threats in this world. And I think we have to remember, yes, the Lord does give and keep, take away lives, but, but when, we, when we think of him as our keeper, as our soul, as our shepherd, as the guardian of our soul, it's probably best to think of him as guarding us and bringing us to his holy city, bringing us to his eternal city. And so there's nothing that can harm your soul, that can harm your eternal state. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And he will guard you from anything and everything that could damage his relationship with you. And so I think that's how we want to read this section. Not that, yes, he will protect us in, in due time, but ultimately his goal is to sanctify you and bring you into the kingdom of heaven. And we finally get to that, that final phrase, or final two little verses, which reminds us that even though our security is in our life in Christ, in eternity with God, he does, in fact, care for us now, too. And so we read this, this, this 
that he keeps our life, he guards our life, it is not simply your heartbeat when we hear about that. It's not just, you know, yeah, I still have a heartbeat. God must still be good. It's everything that makes you, you, the Lord cares about. He's not like this God, right? Have you ever heard the term the clockmaker God? He winds up the clock and he sets it down and walks away and he's off partying with his buddies in the heavenly court. It's not who God is. Rather, he is, he is intimately involved with your life. He knows everything about you. He is always on the job, like we said. He's the good keeper, the good shepherd who protects us from danger. <clears throat> he knows your, your sins and your virtues. He calls you to repent of your sins. He encourages you to grow in your virtues. He knows your sorrows and he comforts you. He knows your joys and delights in those. He knows you and he knows everything about you. And so this psalm drives home this really simple fact. It's just a simple little psalm that drives home the ever-present reminder that Christ is my, Christ is your ever-present help. And it provides us with four simple ways to just remember this. He's so big that he created heaven and earth. He never sleeps. He's always on the job. He is a good keeper, the good shepherd who protects you from all dangers, natural and unnatural. And he cares for you for every moment of your life and guards you. With these in mind, I pray that you would have the confidence to say with the psalmist, my help comes from the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.